The Jugcast with Christmas in Sight. With Ian Morrison, Haratina Mukashanu, Alex Clark, Laura Driesen, Fiona Porter, and Emma Alexander. The Jugcast, December 2018 edition. Hello and welcome to the Jugcast. I'm Alex and joining me in the studio are Emma and Laura. Hey, hello. How's it going? Pretty good. I was just trying to not laugh at your terrible pun <laughs> <laughs> the whole time. And as you kept talking, I was like, it's Christmas <laughs> and Mars. Yay. Awesome All in one Mars pun. pun. <laughs> yeah. um, in the show this time, Emma Alexander is sitting next to me, but is also <laughs> doing the interview of Amory Trio about his exoplanetary research especially in the TRAPPIST-1 system, and Ian Morrison and Haratina Mogosanu uh, take a look at what's happening in the December night sky. But before we talk about all that, um, here's Fiona Porter with this month's news. This month in the news, a gamma-ray burst candidate, the sun's long-lost twin, and black holes in virtual reality. First up, a team led by Joseph Callingham has produced an incredible image of a star system that might produce the closest gamma-ray burst ever to be detected. This star system, nicknamed Apep after the Egyptian snake deity of Chaos, contains a binary pair of wolf-rayet stars. These are massive stars near the end of their lives that have finished burning hydrogen and will eventually become supernovae. In Apep, these stars are orbiting each other at a very high velocity, almost fast enough to tear the stars themselves apart, and producing stellar winds of around 3,400 kilometres per second. It's these winds that have created the most striking feature of APEP. When viewed in the infrared, pinwheel-shaped trails of dust spiral around the central stars, as can be seen in the image produced by the Very Large Telescope. This sight of a star wrapped by a series of serpentine coils is what led it to being named APEP after the mortal enemy of the Egyptian sun god Ra. Not only is Apep a spectacular sight in itself, but when the stars do collapse to form supernovae, it's believed they might produce a gamma-ray burst. Gamma-ray bursts are the brightest events in the universe. They involve a strong release of energy at gamma-ray wavelengths, which can last between a few milliseconds and a few hours. After the gamma component dies down, they're followed by a longer-lived afterglow in longer wavelengths, from X-ray through visible through the radio spectrum. Gamma-ray bursts are, however, quite rare. So far, every burst detected has been outside our galaxy, with the closest to date being around 130 million light-years away. Not only is APEP in the Milky Way, the only gamma-ray burst candidate that we've found here so far, but it's only 8,000 light-years away. Previously, sources have been too far away to study the stars that created the bursts, so if one does happen, we'll have an unprecedented chance to study its build-up and evolution. When could we expect to see such a gamma-ray burst? The orbital period of the Wolf-Rayet stars helps set a limit. The velocity they're currently moving at can only be maintained for a few hundred thousand years, which is a very short time in astronomy terms, so it could be at any time. In the meanwhile, further observations can help us understand just what's happening in this remarkable system. Now, from stars very different to our own to one that's very much the same, so much so that it's been described as a solar twin. Discovered by the Ombre project, a star called HD 186302 has been found to share a large number of characteristics with the Sun. It has very similar chemical abundances, metallicity, which is a measure of the elements that aren't hydrogen or helium, temperature, 
and ratio of carbon isotopes to the sun, and a spectral type only a few steps away, a G3V or G5V compared to the sun's G2V. More significantly, however, this star's age is very close to the sun's age, which raises the possibility that they could have the same origins. Rather than being so similar by pure chance, this star and the sun may have formed in the same stellar nursery over four and a half billion years ago, before the motion of the Milky Way scattered the stars in the nursery. At only 180 light years away, the current location and movements of HD 186302 suggest that it may well be possible that these two stars share a common origin. HD 186302 is only the second solar sibling ever discovered. The first, HD 162826, is around 110 light years away, and it's believed to be unlikely that we'll find any closer to us. Even so, the more of these sibling stars that are found, the more we'll be able to learn about the Sun's origin. Plans are also now underway to scan HD 186302 to see if it has any planets, and who knows, perhaps it might have one that looks a little bit like the one we live on. Finally, have you ever wondered what it might look like up close to a black hole? Thanks to a team from Khadbaud University and Goethe University, you can find out. Using detailed computational models, this group has made a 360-degree virtual reality simulation of the supermassive black hole at the centre of the Milky Way, Sagittarius A star, which can be viewed with any VR console. As well as allowing for an understanding of the mechanics behind black holes for scientists, the team believes it could serve as a valuable outreach tool, allowing the general public to take a look at these extreme objects. It could also be used as a teaching resource, to help interactively introduce children to the phenomenon of black holes. Even the closest black holes are far away enough that no human today will be able to see one this close in person, but now it's possible to enjoy the sights in the safety and comfort of our own homes. Thanks for that, Fiona. Now I interview Amory Trio about his exoplanetary research, especially the TRAPPIST-1 system. Joining me today is Dr. Amory Trio from the University of Birmingham. So welcome to the Jodcast. Thank you for Thank joining you us. Thank you very much. Um, could you give us a brief overview in your own words about who you are and what is it that you do in the world of astronomy? So I'm a fellow at the University of Birmingham and my research focuses on exoplanets. I find exoplanets and I found participated in finding about 150 of them across the years. And I use them to study various things like planet formation, for instance. I study the atmospheres of the planets, their orbital elements, trying to find more about all those planets we find. Sounds really interesting. I know you were one of the discoverers of the TRAPPIST-1 exoplanetary system. Could you give our listeners an overview of that discovery and why it was so exciting? It was an incredible moment. So we were targeting ultra-cool dwarfs, stars that are really small, like 10% of the mass of the Sun, because they help us finding small planets. It's easier to see a small planet in front of a small star than a small planet in front of a big star like the Sun. And we were hoping that by targeting these small stars, we would find terrestrial planets. But to do that, we needed a big facility, and we didn't have the funds to do that. So we thought a prototype could show that indeed it worked. And it's during this pilot run that we identified TRAPPIST-1. TRAPPIST-1 is a very small star, so 10% the mass of the Sun, 10% of the size of the Sun. And around it, we found seven planets, seven terrestrial planets. They have sizes to slightly larger than the Earth, to slightly smaller than the Earth. They have masses that are compatible with most of the terrestrial planets. And 
we are combining the mass and the radius, we also know the density is really similar to the planets of our solar system. In addition, the distance they have from the star implies that how much energy they receive is similar to the planets of the solar system. They range from about the temperature of Mercury to the temperature of the asteroid belt, meaning that we call the planets temperate, that under certain sometimes exotic uh, geologic and atmospheric condition, one could expect that liquid water has the potential to exist and persist for billions of years. Trappist-1 becomes an incredible target with high potential to determine empirically the habitability of a world. See, like for a long time we were saying a planet is in the habitable zone, so it must be habitable, but really we had no idea and no way of testing that. Whereas now with Trappist-1, thanks to the optimal conditions of the star, we will be able to one day empirically determine whether the conditions on the surface are habitable or not. And that's what's so fascinating and great about it. And it's not just one planet, it's seven of them in one go giving us a lot of chances to try, a lot of chances to compare one planet to the other. So outside of planets being in the habitable zone, what kind of telltale signs can you use to see if a planet potentially might be habitable? So what you want to see is whether first it has an atmosphere. Although I think objects can be habitable without an atmosphere, we're talking, for instance, the moon of Europa or Enceladus are potentially habitable. We need an atmosphere because if we want to study the chemical composition of a planet, we need something to receive it, and an atmosphere is an obvious receptacle. So we would like to find first whether the planets have an atmosphere. And once we have established that, we would like to know how much the various components of it are. So for instance, how much greenhouse gas, CO2, water vapor, all of those, because this will inform us about the surface conditions of the planet. And this will then have an implication on their habitability. And then it may be possible that some observations have the potential to tell us whether there is liquid water on the surface as well. People are working notably on specific signs to the Earth that we see, for instance, in the UV, we see a vast exosphere around the Earth that if we were to detect around such another planet would tell us something interesting is happening. Now, our ultimate goal is also to find out whether the planets are not just habitable, but also inhabited, inhabited probably by small organisms, we will most likely be able to detect the effect or the gases released as waste by a microorganism like algae or maybe vegetation, not really looking for sentience or intelligence or anything like that. And those on Earth, that's where Earth stands out in the solar system. We see that among all the compositions, it's the only one that has vast amount of oxygen that has gotten rid of most of the carbon dioxide because it's used by biology. So biology stocks that CO2 releases oxygen in a process. And that's where TRAPPIST-1 also is very interesting. With seven worlds altogether, uh, it would be very easy to pick up if one planet has a lot more oxygen than any of the other, and so pick up the right planet. Whereas if we had only one potentially habitable planet and there was oxygen there, you might always wonder, well, how unusual is it? Maybe, you know, there is a specific thing happening in that system that means there is a lot of oxygen. So comparison in TRAPPIST-1 is great. Seven worlds we can compare to one another. And what would the kind of protocol be if you were to detect signs of life on another planet, with it being so far away? Within the solar system, when we send, uh, say, probes to Mars, for example, there's, I guess, the great issue of potential contamination. And so there's lots of safeguarding effects for that. But when these planets are so far away, are there any considerations that you have to make? So all our observations are remote, so there's obviously no problems of contamination. I think the protocol would be fairly minimal, the same as any other scientific paper. 
We would make a detection, try to write it up into a scientific report, submit it to a journal, and see what happens through a peer review process. No doubt, I think on TRAPPIST-1 there will be many claims soon. I think within 10 years we are likely to see claims. Whether they will be real or not, it will take time, I think. There is no reason to hold off on such a discovery, and it will uh, follow the standard scientific procedures. Well, we'll hold out for some more stuff coming from TRAPPIST-1 then. And you mentioned earlier that you've discovered over 150 exoplanets by now. Are they all similar to the TRAPPIST-1 system, or is there more of a range? Now, most of them were done in collaboration with the WASP group. So it's a British consortium of universities running two experiments in the north and the south called the Wide Angle Search for Planets. And when doing my thesis in Geneva, I became the manager of the radial velocity confirmation of the candidates there were. So among the thousands uh, or so planet candidates, we identified about 150 planets using the Doppler method. Or we see that the star wobbles at the same frequency or the same period that we see something pass in front of the star in the WASP data. And that way we could basically measure again masses and radius, like for TRAPPIST-1 in many ways and therefore density establishing the planetary nature of the object. Most of the WASP discoveries are gas giants. There are a few that would fall into the sort of mini-Neptune-type range or Saturnian range, but by and large they're all so-called hot Jupiters, some of the first planets that were found. But interestingly, the signals that we detect from the hot Jupiters are similar to the one from TRAPPIST-1. So when a planet passes in front of its star, it casts a shadow that we call a transit. It leads, typically, for a planet the size of Jupiter on a star the size of the Sun, it leads to a drop in brightness of about 1%. So not something your eye can pick up, but easily an instrument. And in the case of TRAPPIST-1, the size of the star is about the same size as Jupiter. And it turns out that the Earth is about 10 times smaller than Jupiter as well. So when a planet the size of the Earth passes in front of an object the size of Jupiter, it also casts a shadow of order 1%, which is how we found TRAPPIST-1. So many of the methods that we've applied on gas giants for now more than a decade with WASP are almost directly applicable to the terrestrial planets of TRAPPIST-1. In the same way that now several dozens of the WASP planets have had their atmospheres probed remotely using the Hubble Space Telescope and ground-based observatories. Similarly, we hope to be able to probe the atmospheres of the TRAPPIST-1 planets using similar facilities. In fact, with Hubble, we already can rule out that the planets have large amount of hydrogen or helium. So either they don't have an atmosphere or they have something denser like what we have on Earth or Venus, for instance. And the forthcoming James Webb Space Telescope, constructed by NASA, ESA, and the Canadian Space Agency, ought to be able to reveal whether the TRAPPIST-1 planets have an atmosphere and what composition they have, which is, I think, an incredible time to be alive. Think about it, we have only two Earth-like planets known so far, Venus and Earth, and they couldn't be more different from one another. And now we have a shot at seven others. What will we have? Will it be seven completely different worlds from one another? Will it be a spectrum from Venus to Earth, or maybe seven Earths, or seven Venuses? Who's to know? Yeah, I suppose in the space of 20, 30 years, we've gone from not knowing about any exoplanets at all to suddenly having an explosion of not only knowing they exist, but being able to do for, like the work that you do and find out stuff about them as well. So that's, yes. that is incredibly exciting. It's impressive, yeah, that in such a short time, we're passing from barely knowing that they exist, even suspecting that planets exist, to now 
seriously considering even detecting signs of tectonics, for instance, or exploring an atmosphere. It's quite mad. And of course, in recent weeks, we had the TESS satellite being launched. Are you excited about that and the potential data that could come from it? Indeed. So TESS, uh, compared to previous efforts in space like Kepler, is not meant to tell us about the statistics of planets, but rather to provide good candidates for atmospheric characterization. So while the planet passes in front of the star uh, during the transit, some of the starlight goes through the atmosphere of the planet and gets imprinted by chemicals that are within it. And interestingly, as we were finding planets... Everything goes really fast in exoplanets. So we started finding planets, Kepler got accepted, and by the time it launched, we had gotten used to the idea of not just finding planets, but studying them in detail. And although Kepler was a vastly successful mission, there was always this sort of frustration that we couldn't learn more about the planets. It was only about statistics, about telling us how many planets of a certain kind there are around a certain type of star, and not be able to go further. So TESS answers that frustration. It goes basically for... The brightest stars, the most likely planets to be characterizable, and it goes for the entire sky, pretty much. And so there is a lot to rejoice about. In fact, also TESS is normally, the nominal mission is only two years. It could easily be extended to four years. The PI has in, in, uh, told that the spacecraft is built to last 10, maybe even 20 years. And if that is the case, it will be not just planets identified, but really well-characterized planets. And so in combination with James Webb and major ground-based facilities like the VLT or the ELT to be constructed, we will have many objects to study for decades to come thanks to TESS. Oddly, though, TESS is going to miss most of the habitable terrestrial planets. You might find a handful, but this handful will be tough to study. For instance, they would be observable with the James Webb Space Telescope, but there won't be enough transit during the mission lifetime of James Webb to reach a five sigma detection on them, which is sort of sad. And that's why we wanted to find planets around these ultra-cool dwarfs, the smallest of stars. Because they're colder, the planets can exist closer to the star within the habitable zone, meaning that they have a lot more transit within the mission lifetime. And so with TRAPPIST-1, for instance, we get for TRAPPIST-1e a, a transit per week, Whereas if you imagine the equivalent Earth around the Sun, you would need 15 transits. You get only one transit per year. So that's 15 years of work. And because sometimes transits happen when the star is behind the Sun and you can't observe it, that's really maybe 20, 30 years of work. And James Webb will only live for five years in domination, a nominal mode, and maybe up to 10 years. So you see, you can't do a proper Earth twin. You have to do it on a smaller star. So tests will inform us about many planets, but... The one bit that you might miss, we will try to do from the ground using those smaller stars, trying to find copies of TRAPPIST-1. Speaking of ground-based telescopes, you mentioned in your online bio that you're a regular visitor to observatories in the Atacama Desert. How do you find that, going out and observing there, and what kind of things go into an observing run? I think going to the Atacama Desert and seeing the galactic plane is like watching the Great Barrier Reef. It's a natural wonder of our planet. Uh, I think the sky is really incredible there. The best time is probably winter in Chile when you see the galactic center. And when the galactic center is up in the sky, after about 20 minutes of adjusting to the darkness on a moonless night, you can start seeing your shadow cast by the light of a 100 billion stars. And I think there is nothing quite like that elsewhere in Europe. Certainly it would be hard to do. I mean, we're missing the galactic center uh, as well. Similarly, when Venus is up there, you see your shadow. 
It's a magical world. I don't know if our listeners here have read The Silmarillion, the precursor of The Lord of the Rings, but in it there's a weird poetry where elves are born in a time when there was no moon and no sun. They lived by starlight and did everything by starlight. Tolkien lived in South Africa, and my bet is that he basically did live by starlight, like when we go in the Atacama and basically see the stars. They're really bright. The old observers as well, and those who stayed all night at the telescope, say that after four or five hours, you can even read by starlight. so clear. It really is something to witness. I would encourage everyone to do that. And so I love going. I go there once or twice a year. I mostly go to La Silla Observatory, which is near the city of La Serena. It's a sort of monastic life. You go there for a week or two, and on the mountain... You don't have money for about two weeks. Uh, there's nothing to buy. There's not much to choose from. You go to bed at sunrise. You go to work at sunset. It's very, you know, very regular. And there is something beautiful to that, a sort of very natural rhythm that is nice to go after the hubbub uh, of uh, the citizen life. In addition, it's a time of reflection. So our telescopes are mostly automated. And so when you're uh, on the mountain observing, you set your night, and if the weather is good, you don't expect any surprises, and so you have plenty of time to think. And that's why I like going. I think a lot. And when you're by night, particularly on the weekend, even spam senders take a break, and so you really get almost no disruption. And that's when I spend most of my time thinking of the symbol of stars that I have or the players that we're finding, trying to imagine how or what else we can do. It's actually where I think I got my brightest ideas was in the dark. Chile is great. That sounds absolutely incredible. I'm very jealous now. As a radio astronomer, I don't get to do that. So go optical. Maybe, maybe. (laughs) When you go on a typical observing run, how many objects or systems would you typically study or does it vary wildly depending on what you're doing? So what happens with planets is that we tend to be dominated by the orbital time scale from a few days to a few years. So because many of us have different programs, we are observing different types of stars or observing on different time scales, we tend to pull together. I think if we were, say, the organization ESO, the European Southern Observatory, were to give you one week, if you were to observe all your target within one week, you wouldn't find a planet. The chance that you would have one on one week is little. So we try to share our time together and so we observe for each other. So it will depend quite a lot. But every night you can easily go for, let's think about it, about 40 objects easily. And so you would cycle through for everyone. And then after a semester, you look at what you have and you decide what to do. It depends on your survey. I'm just starting a survey on something else altogether. It's a second binary planets. It's actually quite exciting. So imagine two stars and a planet orbiting both of them. So think Tatooine, for instance. So for those, we'll try to do as blind as possible. So try to observe the stars as homogeneously as possible throughout the two years of the survey so that we don't get blindsided by, say, something that starts moving and they say, oh, we spend all our resources into it and then forget that there are other stars that also need to be observed. So it depends what your philosophy is. I try to be statistical. Others want to detect, and so we'll go for every possible sign of a planet. You mentioned circumbinary stars just then, and planets orbiting around those. That sounds like a fascinating setup. Could you go into a little bit more detail about that? Sure. I mean, that's my new hobby, so to speak. I tend to be interested in planets that are very different from the solar system. I take the view that we get blinded by the attributes of the solar system. We think the sun is normal when it represents... Only about 15% of stars are sun-like stars. In fact, only half of those are single sun-like stars. Half of the sun-like stars exist in a pair, in a binary. 
I take the view that if we had been born in a binary system, we would have found all sorts of very clever theory to explain why the binary was responsible for the formation of planet and the origin of life on Earth. And so I try to think the opposite of that. What thing is obviously missing in a solar system? And one of them is actually small stars. Uh, for instance, half of the stars in the sky are too small, uh, too dim to be seen, like Trappist-1. And another is that half of them are binary. So what about planets in binary systems? And one special case is the case where the planet orbits both stars at once. So the survey here aims to look at a different environment for planet formation. So planet formation is a very messy process. Many bits of physics are acting, and we don't really know which one is important. One thing that came quite clear is that if you had two stars, they tend to steer the disk of material that is around them. And notably, we'll steer the, the dust. Then the dust will occupy eccentric orbits. And that means that instead of merging together, they'll collide a bit more strongly. And that tends to be destructive. And so you expect planet formation to be stifled in a circumbinary environment. And most people expected that we would find none. A few people have tried to find them early on, no results. And then Kepler came along and then revealed that out of the two or three thousand binaries in there, that nine planetary systems existed that had uh, second binary planets. I think it's actually one of the most exciting results of Kepler, one of the true discoveries of Kepler. Since the rest of the stats, we had a sort of inkling that the planets were there and existed. But second binary planets came sort of out of the blue, and that fascinated me. So when they were found, I paid some attention, and then more were found, and I paid even more attention. I started thinking, well, why don't I start investigating what's happening in there? And I started getting interested in the fact that theory is a bit ambiguous on whether we should find many of them or not. So with a student, we looked into the occurrence rate, how frequently they exist, and we find that they seem to be gas giants, at least seem to be as frequent in a second binary, around a binary, as around a single star, which is surprising and goes against what theory informs us. But Kepler only has a very biased view, so the way where he found them was first to find an eclipsing binary, so two stars passing in front of each other, and then finding a planet passing in front of one of the two stars. So you need everything to be exactly in the same disk, in the same plane. And some of my other observations or the work showed that gas giants often are on random orbits. Sometimes they orbit along the equator of the star, and sometimes they are along the pole or at any random angle, or even retrograde. So the star goes one way and the planet goes the opposite way. And so I thought that this result was probably biased in some way, and that there were more planets in the sample that we couldn't see. And that's where this new survey is coming. So we will use the 3.6 meter NASIA and HARPS, the premier planet hunter on the ground-based telescope, trying to survey about 40 binaries and finding maybe 5 to 10, maybe 15 second binary planets that way. And hopefully we'll be then able to compare them. The idea is to assemble a comparison sample. Very few people in exoplanets have managed to create a true comparison sample to the general population. Here we have solar-like stars orbited by a tiny star, and then we're looking for planets around both. And so they almost like a single sun-like star. They just have a small companion next to them. And so we hope to compare the occurrence rate of them, how the mass distributes, how the orbital parameters are similar or different. And each of these similarities or difference will become as many tests for theory, actually tests that even theorists haven't thought of yet because they didn't think we could really find them in that way. So uh, we hope to be able to detect uh, many interesting things in the near future. Yeah, that sounds really exciting. You mentioned during that 
retrograde planets. Could you tell me a little bit more about those? Sure. Well, let's uh, carry on down the rabbit hole. Uh, the main result of my PhD thesis. So uh, most people have this Kantian or Laplacian idea that a star is born out of a primordial nebula, then it forms a disk around it, and the disk will be in the same plane as the equator of the star, as angular momentum is shared between them. And so you'd expect the planets to be in the same plane as the equator. In fact, that's why, that's because the Sun and all the planets shared the same plane that Laplace and Kant thought that we came out of a disk. And when we try to do that on hot Jupiters, the hot Jupiters we mentioned earlier as found by the WASP consortium, part of my job was to confirm the planets using the Doppler wobbling method. And the author was actually, I was interested in studying the planet as it passed in front of the star during the transit. And when it does so, we can measure something called the Rossiter-McLaughlin effect. Essentially, it's an anomaly that happens when the star rotates, and so an hemisphere will be blue-shifted as it comes towards us, the other will be red-shifted as it recedes from us. And when the planet will hide the blue-shifted side, it will look like the star is redder in average than it ought to, and vice versa. So as it scans the surface, we get how much time it spent on the advancing hemisphere compared to the receding hemisphere. And from that, we can deduce the angle the orbit has compared to the equator of the star. And to our surprise, we found retrograde planets, so planets that basically went counter the rotation of the star. We found planets on any sort of angle, but 30% of the gas giants that we observed have random orbits, and the other 70 seem to be like the solar system, in the same plane, more or less. And we understand that as the relic of planet interaction, so planet interacting together, one planet being launched out of the plane of the general planetary system on an eccentric orbit, and as the planet comes close to the star on periestrons, or the closest, then tides act to circularize and bring the planet close to the star, and then preserve that inclination. There is still a fair amount of debate about these observations, what they actually mean, and how much we can infer about the formation of planets from those. It's actually also the topic that launched me and got me interested in planet formation to begin with. It's odd, and it's a very messy situation, and I thought those inclined planets would be a very clear sign that planet-planet interactions happen, but other theories have since sprung up, like maybe the disk was inclined, maybe the star basically tilts, there's uh, a lot of degeneracies, and it's why I moved to other fields while keeping that one, but extended to other fields, like TRAPPIST-1 is a star that is an order of magnitude in mass from the Sun, so it's trying to find if the outcome of planet formation is the same around the Sun as it is an order of magnitude away, as the way we do science. We observe whether physical laws work on orders of magnitude. And why now I'm moving to second binary planets as they offer a different environment, a new window on the process of planet formation. So you've mentioned a lot of interesting different kinds of exoplanets. Do you have a particular favourite of one that you've studied so far? I think they all are just as exciting. In fact, there are many others I'd like to study as well, so it's just a lack of time. So please, out there, come and become an exoplaneteer. I'm sure there'll be many people listening that will be interested in it, so hopefully there might be some people on your way at some point. It'd be nice, yeah. I think it's a booming field. It's getting ever more exciting. It's akin to filling in the white parts of a map. We really had no idea what was out there. And filling those bits is just exciting. It's part exploration. And then as we move away from exploration, we start also posing and answering truly scientific questions, some that we can, you know, get a comparison sample out of or get an answer. It's really exciting. You get uh, the best of both worlds. So where do you see the field going over the next few years? It's a very interesting question. 
We have many space missions dedicated. So TESS, you mentioned, uh, launched just the past week. We have Keops, satellite launched by ESA next year, notably. Following that, we will have Plato, a new planet discovery mission similar to TESS in that it will try to find planets to be characterized and hunt for an Earth twin, so a copy of the Earth around a single sun-like star. And following that, we have Ariel, which has just been selected by the European Space Agency to study atmospheres, mostly of hot Jupiters, maybe some cooler gas giants, and some of the weird super-Earth mini-Neptune type planets, or planets in between Earth and Neptune that we have found in many of the exoplanetary systems. So that is quite laid out until the 2030s, easily. So the field, I think, is quite heavily biased into transiting planets at the moment. I think the future lays in non-transiting planets. So planets that transit only form a tiny fraction of all the planets, and many more that don't have the geometric configuration to transit. And so if one can figure out how to find those planets in large quantities and study their atmospheres together, then they hold the key of the future because then we will have an ever greater, larger collection of planets and a chance to study them more easily than just during the few hours of transit. I think that's the direction that we should really consider and, and move forward. Well, it seems like the Jodcast will have a lot of interesting exoplanetary things to talk about over the next few years then. Yes, indeed. Yeah, uh, look forward to the first uh, claims on life on TRAPPIST-1 within 10 years. I'm saying claims. It's not clear whether it will be life, but it's soon to come. James Webb will be able to do so much. In that case, I've got to ask, aliens. Ah, aliens. Yes. Those. What do you think are the chances that we will find some form of life on any exoplanet. So I'm a born optimist about the presence of biology elsewhere. I'm uh, pretty pessimistic about intelligence or sentience. Well, we'll see. I really don't know. Uh, ultimately, that's why I want to find out, because I don't know. TRAPPIST-1 is one of the most optimal cases where we can gather evidence on whether there is or isn't. But the data will be hard to interpret. I think it's pretty clear that James Webb can tell us Within 10 years of James Webb's launch, we will have all the data we need to make a statement on whether any of the TRAPPIST-1 planets have an atmosphere similar or dissimilar to the Earth. If it turns out to be similar, whether it's life or not, I think will be a long process. It's a long process of interpretation. We'll have to find out how the chemical species are in equilibrium with respect to another and with respect to the energy budget of the planet. I think the interpretation will prove to be the most contentious part. But it's still quite exciting to think that Within 10 years, we might actually be able to make that statement. This atmosphere looks like that of the Earth. So regardless of whether there is biology there or not, we might actually go there and breathe it. That'd be quite fantastic to begin with. It's surprising, coming back to your earlier statement, that between the first discovery of a planet and 30 years later being able to already say that a terrestrial world is similar to ours is an impressive step. So there's much to look forward to. I think we can be able to study from terrestrial planets to giant planets at pretty much any temperature. And I'm sure we will be able to learn a lot from uh, from all of those. Brilliant. Well, we'll all keep our eyes peeled for uh, results. Well, thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you. A pleasure. Thanks for that, Emma. Now we come to the part of the show where we fit in all those other bits that we can't fit in anywhere else. The odds and ends. Uh, so the first thing that I wanted to shout out about is um, a PhD student here at Manchester uh, who works with my supervisor called Joe Hansen, and he was recently on University Challenge. And he defeated, this was in fact last night, 
um, he and his team, I should say. The University of Manchester yeah. team. So the University, University of Manchester team, and they defeated Hartford College, um, Oxford, last night. It was awesome. Um, and also before that, so this is round two, so round one, um, about a month ago, they defeated University of East London. Um, but this time round is quite unique because Joe has become quite famous on Twitter for a lot of his excellent facial expressions <laughs> during <laughs> an, an eager on the buzzer he's not just one meme now he's multiple memes <laughs> but nice memes <laughs> relatable memes <laughs> and he even has a an article on i don't remember which. he's it's been covered in the daily mail um and uh, also the the manchester evening news as well so yes uh fame for for a jbca member um I yep. think he's at Joe M. Hansen on Twitter, but Hansen with an O-N at the end. Yes. Not an E-N. Yes. yes. Is that the same yep. spelling as Hansen, like Mbop Hansen, or I is it the know. other spelling? I don't know, Hansen? but that refers to many of the memes that have been made about Joe. There yeah. Many Mbop references. <laughs> as there should be. Mm-hmm. I mean, really. <laughs> um, so, yes. Seriously, well done, Joe. Um, good job on Uni Challenge. And I believe he's still got at least two episodes left because they're through to the quarterfinals. So that's at least two more rounds uh, that they will be in. Um, so you can catch that on, on University Challenge. And uh, apparently there are some memeable moments coming up as well. So mm-hmm. all about the memes here at the Jodcast. <laughs> or at least I am. Yeah, Joe's awesome. You should definitely check that out. We'll make sure we tweet some of the memes on the Jodcast uh, and share them on Facebook. Yes. So that you guys get to see them too. Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, so the other, I've got a two-part odd and end. The other it's a very small odd and end I wanted to shout out about is that I realised the other day that the International Space Station had a birthday. Woo, happy week. birthday. Yeah. <laughs> so it became 20 um, last week, November. So for 20 years, it has been continuously orbiting Earth with people on board, which is pretty... So it's it's 20 years that we can say that there have not all the human population have been on earth yeah exactly yeah and i think it's it's uh there's quite a few times actually where it's over the area of sea that's so empty that the closest humans to that point on earth are actually the people in the iss mm. oh that is cool yeah so there's a point mm. in in the middle of uh in the middle of the ocean i don't know mm. which ocean probably yeah, the pacific it's only like 200 um 250 miles above the um surface yeah but there's yeah. this one point so where it's actually yeah where there's actually weight i think it's something like so many because uh, it's such an empty spot that where whenever we uh lose a spacecraft or deliberately oh, yeah. send it out of orbit that's where they end up so there's basically a space junk graveyard in yeah. the middle of the ocean and every now and then the iss the people on the iss are the closest human beings yeah. to that spot on the earth yeah which is pretty cool i think it must be the pacific yeah, I think it's the like Pacific. That. that makes sense because that's a pretty big ocean. Yeah. So yeah. I'd be going with that one. But yeah. I'm sure lots of people will be able to tweet in about exactly what the spot is called because yeah. I can't Google fast enough. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so that's pretty cool. 20 years of continuous um, living in space. So it's never been unmanned? No. Oh. Uncrewed? Uncrewed. Uncrewed. Sorry. <laughs> That's pretty bad. Uh, although I have seen, I have seen recently. I don't know if there's been any updates recently that I haven't seen. Um, there is a slight concern as to whether or not this continuous streak of being crude can be continued because mm. they they have had a few uh, issues with the ISS recently. We have covered them in previous shortcuts. Yeah. But uh, yeah, including the little hole that was found. Yeah. Yeah. I remember that. Yeah. Yep. yep. <laughs> 
Um, not ideal. Not ideal. Yeah. Um, the last launch failed. Mm-hmm. It to come back to Earth mm-hmm. properly. But so yeah, there's three of them up there right now, but they seem to be fine. And I think there's the next crew is launching before the end of the year or pretty soon. Well, I think they were due to. I'm not sure. No, apparently, yeah, December third, um, there should be a launch oh, for ex- Expedition Fifty Eight. Sweet. So it seems like everything's back on track with the ISS. Fifty eight. So is that fifty eight attempted launches or fifty eight? So fifty seven must have been the one that tried. Mm, yeah. And fifty eight. Well, they they I know that they overlap. Mm-hmm. So, for example, Ex- Expedition Fifty Seven is due to come back to land on the twentieth of December. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's cool. So twenty years. And it's expected to keep going for a while, I guess. Yeah, I don't know when it's funded to. Um, I, I guess um, well, there's these questions are always like, how long are they going to... Because it's very US-dependent, isn't it? Yeah, and it depends if they renew the funding as well, because a lot of the times you get close to the end of your funding and then they're like, eh, we've yeah. got more money. Yeah, hopefully people carry on. People, hopefully politicians still see the importance of the research done up there. Yes. And it probably will become easier with like um, SpaceX and Boeing now. Almost, I think they're doing crew crewed launches next year. Like, Are they space force? No, space force. <laughs> this, is not, this is not the government space force. <laughs> well, I mean, I guess we we all know which certain politician we is do. the important one to decide whether we get to, we whether do. people keep get to keep going up to the space station. Anyway, to link the ISS into a bit of a Christmas theme because it's December right now. Yes, yeah. <laughs> totally. It is December. It is. Yeah. Um, so in the past, uh, there have been lots of articles about getting people to look out for the International Space Station over Christmas. And ideally, you'd be seeing the ISS on Christmas Eve, and you can tell your little ones that it's Santa going overhead, and it's all very nice, and hopefully we'll get people a little bit more interested in looking out into space and astronomy. Uh, so I can never complain about that. And uh, unfortunately, that's not going to be the case this year, um, but the ISS will be in the skies um, this December, and the closest pass to Christmas will be on the 13th of December. So if you are interested in going out with some little Santa believers, then... (laughs) Santa believers! (laughs) Uh, They're like believers. Father Christmas. Yeah. Um, yes, if you are interested in going out with some kids um, to look for Santa, uh, maybe you could tell them that it's a test run. Uh, the ISS will be coming over the UK in early December, with the last one being on the 13th, and it will return to the skies in late January. Do we have a website for that? Because maybe people in other cities might be interested in when it's going over them. Yes. Uh, so there is a website called Spot the Station. So if you... Uh, search for Spot the Station on any good internet search provider, then... Okay, and that will give other countries or just the... Uh-huh, you can you can put in your location anywhere on the globe. Nice. I realised that was being quite UK-centric. Yes. But, uh, yeah. <laughs> nice, because it could be closer to you depending on where you are. Mm-hmm. So there might actually be some lucky listeners who do get the ISS yeah. passing mm-hmm. over on yeah. Christmas Eve. Christmas. So yeah. definitely have a look out for that because you never know, you might be one of the lucky ones. Speaking of things that we as humans have put into space, InSight has landed. Woo! So this is 
uh, a robotic lander uh, which has safely touched down on the surface of Mars um, and this happened on the 26th of November just before 8pm UK time and this marks the first time that we've landed something on the red planet since the Curiosity rover which was over six years ago now. Can you believe that? Wow. We've had Curiosity for six years. Nice. Is that the one that kind of went to sleep recently and then woke back up again? No, so that that's opportunity. Oh, okay. Um, sadly, we think we have lost opportunity mm. now. That one's um, way older. Yeah, no. So I mean, spirit. So spirit and opportunity were back from two thousand and four. Yes, two thousand and four. Nice. Um, so I mean, they massively outlived their predicted uh, kind of yep. research times. Yep. Um, so they're, they're doing very. In fact, even Curiosity, I think, was only meant to last a couple of years, if mm. that, and mm. uh, still still going strong. So. Woohoo! Awesome. Cur- Curiosity finally has a different lander that it can um, have happy birthday sung to it. Oh, that's so sad. <laughs> I mean, they, they, they're not in the same place. Oh. But, you know. Maybe they'll It's the thought that counts. They are rovers. They could, they could go and meet each Maybe other. Maybe they'll override the well, human's commands. Well, Insight's not a rover, is it? Isn't Insight a drill that's drilling down? Yes. But it moves as well. So it's a land. No, it's just a lander, I believe, because it is going to drill. Uh, curiosities are curiosity could move to where insight is. See, we're all learning something new. Emma is the only one who has any oh, wow. idea. Alex and I are just like, yes, cool. I just uh, assumed that it could move. No, no, in, no, insight cannot. But it's on on the grand scheme of where things have landed on Mars. I've got a little map up in front of me. Not that this is helpful to any of the listeners. I'm sorry, um, but uh, curiosity and insight are reasonably close to each other. They're both um, around the Martian equator. And uh, they're about uh, it, just over 120 degrees longitude. Yes, that's the right word. <clears throat> um, so yeah, we, we have successfully landed InSight on Mars, which, given the history of landing on Mars, is pretty impressive because we, we've, we've tried to go to Mars quite a lot. In total, there have been 43 um, missions from various space agencies to Mars. So some wow. of these are just kind of orbiters, you know, not all of them are, are trying to land. Okay. Um, but yeah, historically, fewer than half of the missions to Mars actually make it there. Um, so really? eight, eight, 18 had been successful and 25 were not successful. Mm. I guess the not successful ones don't get publicised. Mm. Yeah, though Inside had been publicised a lot before it landed. I think we just tend to forget about the ones that yeah, were not because, successful because yeah, they, they, they do tend to do a lot of publicity because it is a big deal and usually mm. these missions, I mean, have been started possibly decades before mm. they actually mm. launch. So it's still pretty exciting and I, I guess just makes it more heartbreaking when they fail. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Pe- people will put entire careers into these things. Yeah. And I think one of the things that media has been quite on it with recent space launches and landings, etc., is when there's the sheer joy on the scientists and, yep. engin- and, and the engineers' faces when these things land. Mm. It, because it is people's lives just yeah. accumulate in this moment and I can't even imagine how that feels. And they actually took that photo that's been on Twitter. So when it first landed, they took a photo, um, just a really basic one, I think, before they even took the, the cap off the, mm. the actual camera. Um, and they actually did that live, which I think was very brave of them because, as we all know from equipment yeah. not doing the right thing the first time and mm. code not running properly the mm-hmm. first time, it's very brave to try and do something like that live. So it's yeah. really cool that they've already taken a photo. Yeah, I mean, it's a grainy photo, but I it doesn't really matter. It's still the first photo, photo which yeah. is really exciting mm-hmm. um, and cool. And they did yeah. it live, which is extra impressive. Yeah. <laughs> and they have since released uh, another photo as well, as of recording this, mm. um, with a proper camera. Well, not a proper camera, but the 
Um, so this is the, the yeah, so the, the first one was from the instrument context camera, and we've also had an image now from the instrument deployment camera. Uh, these are such catchy names, and it is absolutely gorgeous. We will definitely post this. In yeah, the it's really will, high res. I will, I will think, I think petition the producers to have this image as the cover photo because it is gorgeous. It's yeah. it's it's a rover on another planet. It's so cool. I love this stuff. Yeah, but yeah, so really happy that this has been successful. As I mentioned, it's rovers on Mars have have not had, or just anything going to Mars has not had the mm. best success rate. Um, space is difficult. Mm really difficult and when you kind of consider what insight has gone through to get where it has i mean it traveled 300 million miles to get to mars from being launched uh, it was launched two years late by the way it was originally scheduled to be launched in 2016 um i don't know of anything that has ever launched on time um, <laughs> i was about to say no surprises they were all yeah. just looked at each other like yeah that sounds actually pretty yeah. fast to be yeah. honest two years is actually Really yeah, good. well, the, the problem was is that they um, they James had an Webb. issue with I think one of the vacuum systems um, on on one of the instruments, mm-hmm. and because basically that that couldn't be fixed within the w- launch window, so they they lost the launch window of going to Mars because yeah. obviously the the planets are moving around yeah. the sun all the time and, and relative to each other, so you you can't just launch a spacecraft whenever and expect to be able to get to Mars easily. Mm. Um, I think that was a plot point of The Martian, right? Yes, definitely. Yeah. That's why the uh, the rich Purnell, I think it is, in the Martin is the rich Purnell move maneuver or something like that. I've watched the movie quite a few times. One of my favorites. <laughs> yes, it is one of the plot points of the Martian. That's why they end up going back in the big ship rather than a little ship. Yeah. <laughs> Everyone, go and watch the Martian. I don't really like what's his name, but you know it's cool. <laughs> the movie's I've heard, still good. I thought the book is good as well. The book is way better than the movie, but that's pretty standard. Um, so, how did it get? How long did it take to get there? Because you said it was like a lot of miles, but how long yeah, did so it take? And how did it sort of? How did they choose where it was going to land? Insight was launched on the fifth of May. So, in terms of how long space missions can last, this is this is actually quite a short time scale once it eventually caught up. And um, yeah, so it was traveling through space. Um, obviously, it had to decelerate quite a lot once it got to Mars. So you you kind of accelerate these spacecraft up so that they can get to wherever they're going in a reasonable amount of time. But then, unless you think about things carefully, they're just going to fly straight past the object you're interested in, or possibly even worse, just crash straight into them. Um, so, yeah, there are obviously lots of calculations to mm-hmm. get this thing um yeah. Onto Mars safely, it hit Mars's atmosphere at an angle of 12 degrees. Um, so this is steep enough so that it doesn't just bounce straight off the atmosphere, which is apparently something that can happen, um, but also shallow enough to not have it just burn up on entry. And uh, experienced 12 Gs right. as it decelerated. That's quite a lot it of It seems like that sounds like a lot. Yeah. You probably can't put a person in that. Probably not. I won't. Mm, I'm Maybe, trying to think. Yeah. Well, well, I think it would take a lot longer. I think the projections for people to people to get to Mars are a lot longer because, of course, mm. you can accelerate and decelerate at these yeah. these high yeah. rates for yeah. something that's not yeah. alive. But for something that's alive, you have to be a little bit more careful. Yeah. Yes, yeah. Exactly. not that they weren't really careful. I'm sure because mm. it is really right, sensitive yeah. equipment, but. Compared to a human. Well, one of the aspects of landing is that there's something called that they call the seven minutes of terror, where they had no contact uh, with, they, they couldn't have any contact with Insight, and so they just didn't know how it was going, and so that's that's the yeah. I think that's the when it's re-entering, right? Yeah, or, yeah. Or the... 
and that that's the the classic yay everything's worked scientists celebrating viewers when they actually get that first contact of yes everything went okay with this with this landing yeah those seven minutes must be awful. And if so, isn't Mars seven light minutes away, right? So um, even if you could send a signal, or eight, is it? It's, like, it's tw- um, I want to say, tw- it depends where it is in its orbit. I'm not sure how far mm. away it is at the well, moment. Well, the, the sun is eight light um, minutes away. Yeah. Um, so I guess if it's about the same distance again. I just, I Depending remember, on where I it is, as you I say, where, where, where it is. is Mars. Yeah, I think yeah. I read that that it was of the order of the same time that it took to re-enter was the same time it took light to go back to Earth. Oh yeah. Close, so the closest possible approach is is three minutes. Oh okay. okay. So yeah, reasonable. at shortest it's three minutes. Um, I think I, I was watching a little animation of this earlier, um, and Mars has over. No, we 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 have undertaken Mars. Um, in the yeah. in the way that it has, so we we're not quite the closest okay. approach. In fact, the closest approach was opposition, which happened over summer, um, cool. linking that to actual astronomy that anyone can actually have a think about themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, so what's um what's what's it going to do now it's on Mars? So its its main science goals, uh, the clue is in the name. So Insight stands for Interior Exploration Using Seismic Investigations, Geodesy, and Heat Transport. Such an easy clue. I know, right? Yeah, <laughs> so just insight. There you go. Uh, I mean, that's not the worst acronym I've ever heard. It's not the best. It's not the worst either. It's an acronym. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they haven't used the second letter of any of the words, though, right? Yeah, that's. I think so. Yeah, that's always a bonus. A yeah, that's. Yeah. A, it's a mark of a good well acronym. Mm-hmm. acronym. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so insight. Uh, the main goals are going to be to study the Martian interior. Because uh, up until now, you know, we've, we've barely scratched the surface of mm-hmm. Mars. Um, so it's, uh, I think I've mentioned before, it's got a seismometer. Uh, so it's going to look for Mars quakes and meter impacts. And um, this this is a way that it can it can study the core of the planet based on the way that these waves are recorded. Um, and we're hoping to find out if the core is liquid or solid, because that's something that we don't know. Um, what do you reckon? I don't know. I'm, I'm not a planetary <laughs> person. I wouldn't even know the answer for Earth. Come on. Earth's no, but isn't got, part of it like It's clearly got liquidy. a liquid core because you need to generate a magnetic field. You need a semi-liquid yeah. core. Clearly, yes. Yeah. I've the given very, this much I think, thought. <laughs> I think the very central part of it is just under so much pressure that it is a solid. I, yeah, when you, yeah, I think when we say liquid, not like literally like what we think of as a liquid. Just yeah. some like, water um, sloshing about there. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. It's one of these special like um, metallic fluids mm-hmm. that's yeah very, very compressed. But I think to have a magnetic field, you have to have some motion. Yeah, require a liquid metallic core, and then clearly because we don't some kind of dynamo, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. So because Mars obviously is very barren and doesn't have a very strong, if any, magnetic field to defend itself from the sun. So yeah, I guess that means they think that the core is solid, but yeah, probably. I think it doesn't um, have a magnetic field at all. Mm. Or it's very, very weak. Yeah. Because that's one of the problems with sending humans to Mars, mm. is that on the surface of Mars, it's irradiated very highly with uh, particles from the sun, and that's a huge problem. Our atmosphere and magnetic field is, like, super important to us yeah, as sure. humans. So, yeah, maybe solid. Mm. But, yeah, hopefully we'll find out with insight. Because um, it's also... Another thing that it's got is it's got a mechanical jackhammer, and mm. it's going to drill five metres below the surface... 
So we're gonna we're gonna drill into Mars. So Curiosity has been kind of scooping up little bits of Mars before, um, but uh, this is going to be the, the deepest we've ever dug on another planet. So yeah, going five five uh, five meters down. Five yeah, meters. yeah. Um, and uh, so yeah, it's like two and a half Alex's. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Divide <laughs> by by one point eight. Yeah. yeah. See, I'm, I'm an astronomer. Yeah. It's approximate. Yeah. <laughs> Um, oh, and another thing that Insight is going to do is it's going to use radio signals to precisely track how much Mars wobbles as it Ooh. as it orbits the sun. Oh, and again, nice. that wobbling is going to be able to give us insight. Insight. <laughs> there we go. So <laughs> uh, insight this... into the Martian core and what what lies under the surface. Yeah, yeah. This was a very well thought out acronym. See. Yeah. See, we've so used it so many times. Insight. Yeah. So I guess. It's really cool to find out about Mars's core, but is there like a further reason that we're doing that in particular? Um, is it to find out about the magnetic fields or, or something really specific? I mean, I, I'm all for science for the sake of science, but I'm just, is there an ultimate goal, I guess, in digging into Mars and that sort of thing? Well, ultimately, I think they, they want to answer just how how hot is Mars mm-hmm. when you go go down below, and you mm-hmm. know, it, and th- this can answer questions like how did Mars form and evolve over time? Um, because why why is Mars as it is, mm-hmm. and it's so different from the Earth? Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know why why did Mars lose all of the thi- a lot of the things that the Earth has that means that we can live here and have evolved here? Mm-hmm. Um, so there's there's kind of kind of fundamental questions that we can answer about the formation of planets. Um, and another big one is, is Mars still warm enough for pockets of liquid water to exist under the surface? Now, there have been some studies out. I think that there was one this year that suggested, I think they used radar observations to, mm. uh, and they think that they, they might, they, they got evidence for there being liquid water under the surface, like a, like a briny pocket of water. Um, but kind of having a confirmation of the temperature and being like, yes, it, it is warm enough to have water here, I think is a big thing. So obviously water... Life and we can we can talk about aliens until the cows come home. Mm. Nice, that's really cool. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it, it all, a lot of it does come down to the question of is there water on Mars? Yeah, oh, there's a lot of people think that there's a lot of um, indirect evidence, like you just mm. said, and also like the the riverbeds and the t- type of tr- structures you see on the surface that look distinctly like dried up rivers and, and things like that. Um, I guess we'll find out hopefully yeah. with insight. Yeah. So I think it's going to take um, three months for all of the instruments to be deployed. Uh, I must right. admit, I'm not entirely sure why uh, it will take three months. It's got to warm up, hasn't it? So and I, I think, think it's I sort of got to unfold as well. I yeah. think everything's kind of folded mm. up and quite intricately. It's really chilly from being in space. Yeah, exactly. So you've got to land <laughs> no, but and, I think it got up. quite warm as it re-entered. Oh, yeah, that. So that as it entered the atmosphere, so I think... Depending how good its heat shield was. Mm. Does it say how long it's going to take it for, to dig down? Because I assume that it's going to have to go Probably quite slowly. Mm. Well, I just say that, that its mission um, is expected to last for two years. Okay. Um, so I don't know how quickly it is going to drill down. I guess because we'll how, how fast did um, does Curiosity move? It, like when it was walking along, when it's rolling along, it goes like <laughs> um, like a, a metre like every couple hours or something. So if that's how much energy it takes just to move, mm. it must be drilling really slowly. Yeah. 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 Apparently, Curiosity uh, has a maximum terrain to traverse speed of 200 metres a day okay. by automatic navigation. Sweet. Yeah, that's so not I think, much. <laughs> so yeah, I think, I, think, I think as you mentioned before, the kind of the, the delay in... Um, being able to contact Mars 
Well, that probably has an effect because if it's drilling down, it might need to pause if it comes across a different type of material or needs to adjust something. So it probably will be going quite slowly also, at least to start with, so they can sort of do the checks and balances as it goes along. They take a lot of caution with these things, yeah. And they'll do science at different depths, right? So they'll Mm. do it every so often they'll... I think it's at every 10 centimetres or something, they're putting a sensor or something Mm. something along those those lines. Um, so yeah, even placing each of those will probably yeah. take a bit of extra time. Yeah. But still, two, I think two years should be enough. Yeah. <laughs> and these things always live longer than they're planned for, right? Like Touch we wood. Earlier. Yeah. <laughs> yes. No. I mean, we're, we're, we're talking. I was. I was even a bit uh, worried about. Do we talk about this on the broadcast? Because we're we're, ob- we're obviously recording this a few days. A, a few days. Hopefully, in a few days, in advance of this going out. Um, so this this all happened yesterday, as of recording. Mm. Uh, not in fact, not even twenty four hours ago. Mm. So uh, it, it, everything looks promising for now. I am so sorry if things break oh, before this goes out, yeah, because I, be. I will personally feel responsible for that. Let's hope that happens. It'll be fine. Be fine. Yeah, it's fine. It'll be fine. Yeah. <laughs> Cool. So yes, all the best insight. Uh, I'm sure we will keep you updated on the Jodcast as that goes along. Alrighty, and now let's move further out. <laughs> we started with the ISS and then we moved to Mars and now we're going to go just a little bit further away um, to the Crab Pulsar. So this is my odds and ends and it's also my paper that came out on the archive today, the day that we are recording. Woo-hoo. Thanks, guys. <laughs> so um, I... Did some work that I started a few years ago, actually. So I'm a PhD student now, but a few years ago I was a summer student at Astron, which is the Netherlands Institute for Radio Astronomy, um, with Gemma uh, Janssen and Case Basser. Um, and I was looking at observations with the Westerbork Synthesis Radio Telescope, which is a telescope in the Netherlands. And at the time we were taking observations, it was 14 dishes, but slowly each one of those was knocked out to become the new updated, upgraded version of Westerbork, which is called Apatif. So Apatif is really cool, but sadly we can no longer do the observations that we were doing at the time of these, uh, of the data that we took. So, uh, yeah, Westerbork is even better now, but not for what I'm doing. So I'm sad, but I should, I should say Apatif is very cool. and It's going to find fast radio bursts and stuff, which is really exciting. So for a bit of a uh, really quick background, cause pretty much every time I come on, we talk about at least pulsars or FLBs. Um, I can't help it. They're what I do. I mean, there are a lot of people here at Manchester, you yeah. know, at Jodrell doing that. So yes, it, it exactly. can't be helped, really. We are outnumbered, aren't we, Alex? <laughs> yeah. I, I would say sorry, but I'm not. I'm not sorry. <laughs> so just for anyone who's maybe a new listener or just for a bit of a refresher, a pulsar is a really small star. So they're a type of neutron star. And neutron stars have a, a radius of about 12 kilometers, which is about the size of Greater Manchester. Um, and they're about 1.4 times the mass of the sun. So they're really tiny compared to the sun. I mean, the earth is already tiny compared to the sun and these are tiny compared to the earth, but a lot heavier than the sun. So, uh, they're really small. They also, uh, sometimes they rotate really fast and they have beams of light coming out of them due to the strong magnetic fields. And then they're a pulsar. And we observe these as that beam of light passes the earth. So looks like a flash, like a lighthouse as it sort of flashes past. So I'm going to talk a lot about something called a pulse profile, and that's the uh, how the brightness changes over time. So as we don't see the beam of light, we see sort of nothing, 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 and as the beam of light passes us, we see a spike of light and then nothing again. So we, we see a spike of light every time 
the the pulsar rotates around. So it's a pulse profile. Um, the crab's pulse profile is a little bit more complicated. It's actually really interesting because you can see the crab at pretty much all frequencies, um, but it, at all frequencies, its profile looks a little bit different. By by all frequencies, do you mean all radio frequencies? So actually all frequencies of light that we can observe at, you can see the crab. So you can see it right up to gamma rays and all the way down in, say, low-far, the low-frequency array in the Netherlands, um, that can go down to, I think, 20, 10, 20 megahertz, you can still see it. So it's And it's really bright. In X-rays, there's actually a unit of measure called a crab or a millicrab because the crab is so bright. So it's actually a unit of measure. Does that, does that mean if you were to look at it with an optical telescope, you'd be able to see the flash? Um, yes, so you can see the pulsar in mm. optical as well. Um, I think supposedly... You can see it with the naked so I'm, eye, I'm, but I I'm not. I've, don't don't. I wouldn't quote me on that because one. Because that rings a bell. I'm sure I've heard stories about how people, even before they knew that there was a pulsar there, <laughs> there was there was a, a couple, maybe even just one person mm-hmm. who thought they saw flashing when they were looking at the nebula, and it wasn't until years later that it was. I mean, because what what is the what is the rotation so, period? I mean, that would be very impressive. But I have heard the same story. It was yeah. a woman from quite quite a long time ago. I forgot mm. forget her name, but she supposedly could see the flashing. So the crab uh, rotates completely every thirty three milliseconds. Oh wow! So that's pretty impressive if you can see that. So how how many times a second is that? That that's... is a good question. It's a lot. <laughs> um, like three hundred, three hundred times a second. Well. I don't know. I don't have that written down. I just have the the period is thirty three milliseconds. Um, yes, it's thirty three. Uh, yeah, thirty three point seven milliseconds. So that's how long it takes. So that's imagine Greater Manchester doing a complete rotation in thirty three milliseconds. That's what the crab is doing, which is a bit crazy. Mm-hmm. Um, so the crab is actually uh, a really interesting pulsar. On top of that, because it's inside a supernova remnant. Um, and if you've ever been to Jodrell, you, you'll have seen the crab supernova remnant a lot because it's in a lot of the walls in the Discovery Center and the cafe, um, which is great because it is absolutely gorgeous. And there have been a lot of observations taken of the crab nebula. Um, but the crab nebula is actually really special. So it's not a typical supernova remnant. So a supernova remnant is what's left over when a really massive star explodes. It's like a uh, an expanding ball of hot gas. Yeah, so the crab is in the supernova remnant, this explode leftovers of exploded star. Um, but it's actually only one of less than 10 of its type that we know of. So supernova remnants are classified into three types. Um, I won't go through the types, but there are about 293 supernova remnants uh, as of now. Um, one of the most recent ones I also discovered and have a paper on just... Quietly you're plugging just, you're, that just, there. you're just too good at this. Stop. <laughs> you're showing the rest of us up. <laughs> um, so, so of the, of all of those, there's only ten that have a similar type to the crab because the crab actually doesn't have the bubble of exploded gas and dust around it. The stuff that's around the crab, that beautiful uh, dusty emission that you can see if you Google Crab Nebula, you'll be able to see it, um, is actually cold supernova remnant ejector dust, which is made also when the star explodes. But normally what happens, a star explodes, the explosion goes out, but there's also something called a reverse shock, which comes back in and destroys all the dust that's made in the middle. So usually that dust doesn't exist, and there's only a couple of supernova remnants that have that kind of type. Another one is uh, G54.1 plus 0.03. Such catchy names. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, we, once we sort of stopped at the crab, we just kind of left it and went with numbers. Um, so when I looked at the crab, and this was a summer project, so initially I was just supposed to be studying something called scattering. And it was supposed to be just basic scattering. So scattering is where 
um, the light from a pulsar hits a, a screen of gas and dust and stuff, and it bounces off and, and gets, uh, I suppose, refracted, but we call it scattered. Um, it could also be diffraction, so we don't really know what the mechanism is 100%, but it basically bounces off the screen and comes back towards us. So that means the light that goes straight through the screen comes to us first, and the light that sort of bounces off at an angle takes longer to get to us, just because it's travelled further. So it's called a multi-path propagation effect. Um, but that means that the profile that we normally see where we see nothing, 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 and then a spike of light, it sort of goes nothing, 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 and then a sort of extended spike, which is caused by the scattering. It's like you take the trailing edge of it and you stretch it out into an, like an exponential shape. Um, so it was supposed to be kind of basic scattering, but as I was looking through it as a summer student, and I think it was like the second week, and I was like, that's weird because the front of it is kind of bendy as well. And normally you don't see that. Normally you see a clear peak on, on like a straight up and down on one side and then stretched out on the other side. Um, and it turns out that we actually see a, an extra copy of the pulse profile of the crab. So the profile of the crab, instead of seeing nothing, 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 and then one spike, you see nothing, 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 a small spike, a big spike, and then nothing, and then another little spike. So there's sort of three spikes in the profile. And what we were actually seeing was six. So we saw like a whole copy of the pulse profile of the crab. And that's only been seen three times before. So the first time ever was actually um, by Andrew Lyne, um, who is a, an alumni here at the University of Manchester and Jodrell Bank. Um, so I referenced his papers a lot. And that was in 1975. So that was a really long time ago. And that's the, the only other time that they've seen it as clearly as we saw it as well. But of course, being the 70s, the instruments weren't quite as good. So they were using a single dish telescope, but with the Westerbork telescope, we were using quite a few dishes. So that means that there was lower noise and we just had really, really good observations. So we could see these extra spikes, what we call echoes, really clearly. And we also noticed a few other things that have been seen a few times as well, but again, not to kind of the same resolution and the same observations. And also we started seeing these things a lot. So it's sort of before this, these, it was thought that these things just sort of happen every now and then, and they sort of take maybe a few months to sort of come and go, whereas we saw one of these echoes come and go in like 15 days. So the idea is that maybe there's something in the nebula that's causing like an extra reflection, an extra scattering effect. Um, so we also modeled it, and some of these things we could model with something called the thin screen approximation, which is a well-known um, approximation, but some of them we couldn't. So basically we did all these observations over two and a half years. We saw a lot of weird scattering stuff, tried to model it. Some of it we could model, some of it we couldn't, and we still don't know what's going on. <laughs> <laughs> so the cool thing about this stuff is that we could use it to map what's going on in the nebula. So the nebula with something like the Hubble, you can see a lot of really nice wispy sort of filaments and beautiful dust structures. But with this sort of observation, we might be able to probe the really, really small structures and the extra link to this is that we often see in fast radio bursts these mysterious flashes from space that we know are coming from outside of our galaxy. We sometimes see this sort of structure on fast radio bursts. So if we can find out more about weird scattering stuff in an object that's closer to us that we know goes off every 33 milliseconds, then we can hopefully apply what we learn to something like a fast radio burst. So that's what that's a brief summary of my paper. <laughs> Awesome. Yeah. So, yeah, your conclusion is that you're not quite sure. Yeah, exactly. Which is quite a cool result. Well, like, we saw something cool, but and there's been work on it, and it's yeah. not like we don't have any idea, but the details of what's going yeah. on just aren't really well known because we don't see this very often. 
um, until now. Mm. So you mentioned as well that Westerbork has now had its has now been changed, it's now a Petif. Yeah. And as you mentioned, lots of new exciting science can be done with that, mm-hmm. but you've now lost the ability to do what you were doing. Are there any other telescopes that could follow this up? Well, it's tricky because the reason that we could see these things is that we we're at the right frequency. So as I said at the start, uh, the crab looks different at all the different frequencies. So we can see it right up to gamma rays, but even in the radio, it varies a lot. So by the time we go down to a telescope, so this was 350 megahertz, the frequency we were observing at. If you go down to low far, which sort of is maybe the highest that they can go is 250 megahertz, already um, the profiles change so much that you can't see these things. And also the scattering increases as you go down in frequency. And once you've got too much scattering, it basically just blurs everything out. It just kind of smushes everything together into one big blob. So that's sort of what happens when you go too low. And when you go too high, then the scattering isn't enough to see anything. So at the same time, we're observing, because uh, every day here at Jodrell, um, the 42-foot observes the crab for as long as it's above the horizon. So that's really, really useful and really cool because it is a super interesting pulsar, but it's at a much higher frequency. So that means that we can't really see all the scattering things that we could see at 350 megahertz at this higher frequency, because I think the 42-foot mm. is L-band, is it 1,400 megahertz, I think? I think so. Or it's maybe 800, I think they can also observe at. But still, either one is too high, um, because the uh, scattering changes with frequency as the power of 4, negative 4. So as you go down in frequency, it increases. You go up in frequency, it decreases. So... Um, that just means you can't really see anything once you go a bit higher than 350 megahertz. We sort of happen to be at a bit of a sweet spot for seeing this sort of effect. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so it is really important. So we need a telescope that has high time resolution because that's important when you're observing something that is changing over a really, really short time scale. So 33 milliseconds for the whole period, but you, to see the details of the structure, you need to have a much much higher time resolution, um, and it needs to be sensitive enough to see it. And also an interferometer is really useful because you do re- decrease the noise on your signal a lot when you start adding in dishes rather than just one dish. Um, so, yeah, there aren't too many instruments that are sort of at that right frequency. I believe the UTI telescope um, could have a chance of seeing something like this, but um, the timescales that these things are changing over, we really need sort of daily observations of something like this in order to see how it really evolves over time. That would be a good place to start because we don't actually know because our observations were sort of, you know, a couple of times a week for two years with a few gaps here and there. And that was enough to see that things were changing, but not really to see how they changed. So we'd see one day we'd see something and the next day it would be different, but we can't connect the dots in between those two mm-hmm. changes. So we need to see them a lot more. We need to be observing the crab a lot more at 350 megahertz with the right kind of instrument. So it's it's tough. <laughs> yeah, it's a very niche discovery space, isn't it? It, it certainly is. Um but there are a lot of groups now working on propagation effects, so it kind of was a bit of an old-school thing to look at. But now there's yeah. a few people at Toronto doing um, scintillometry, which is, like, next-level complicated. <laughs> it's crazy, but it's very cool. Lots I of guess, maths like, your stuff. result will motivate, like, um, other people who are doing simulations or theories to, to try and explain it, right? Whereas mm-hmm. they wouldn't have tried or to, to have modelled these kind of things. Um, but now that they've seen these strange things happening, maybe there'll be some uh, some super high-detailed modelling to try and work out exactly why these... Yeah, I mean, that's what we hope, because yeah. we, we did a little bit of sort of 
kind of shallow analysis because we are observational astronomers and yeah. we, we try yeah. um, and we do know a lot of the theory, but we're not really deep into the theory. So we really, um, we also have made some of our, uh, well, our data available online. So there's a link in the paper that links you to a Zenodo page, which has the data. So anyone who's interested can go in and grab some and have a bit of a play around because that's kind of what we're hoping. We really want people to look more into this because we sort of were at a bit of a loss. And, and at the moment there's actually so many theories that it's just a bit hard. Is it a plasma prism? Is it refraction at the edges of two bubbles in the ISM that are the, the interface between two bubbles in the ISM? There's there's lots and lots of theories. Is it some sort of reflection going on? We just don't really know what the physics is. It's, it's optics of some kind, um, but that gets complicated when you're mm. in space and then you're talking about mm. dust and plasma because the crab also has something called a plasma wind nebula around it, which is really cool. But is that the kind of material that could cause this effect? We don't really know because plasma is like ultra-relativistic electrons and things like that, and that just gets a bit crazy, and I just don't know the theory behind that. Mm. Observations, yes. Mm. Plasma, yeah, not so much. <laughs> but, yeah, if anybody's interested in having a look, you can have a look at the data yourselves. Um, so it's in something called the PS Archive format, so that is something that you would need to download PS Archive. But the links are all in the paper, so you could do that. Anyone can have a look. Cool. Yeah. Awesome. <laughs> We're all for open science. Yes, definitely. Yeah. <laughs> so if the paper is on archive. We'll put the link in so you can, anybody can read it and anybody can access the data that I've made available. Awesome. So what's your next gonna, next paper going to be on? <laughs> no pressure. <laughs> ready for the January episode? Um, <laughs> I, that, <laughs> I mean, that would be amazing. <laughs> Maybe flare stars. I'm going into okay. flare stars and fast cool. radio bursts now okay, nice. with Meerkat, but... We'll see. I feel like I've been a bit lucky. <laughs> so, well, I'm not going to say I'm lucky. I worked hard. Um, but yeah, I've been lucky to get good science with it. Cause I did a few summer research projects, which is something that if anybody's listening who knows a uni student in say second or third year, um, or is a uni student in second or third year, summer studentships are something that you can do. And I'd recommend Googling it. Almost all fields have them. Physics, science. I can't speak for the humanities. <laughs> But I would really recommend because that's where this project started as as an astron summer student, mm-hmm. and I was uh, yeah my supervisors him and Case are just amazing, and I still consider them my friends and mentors now. So um, as a young student and a junior in the field, it's really nice to have that support system. So I really recommend mm-hmm. looking into those things if anybody's sort of at the right level to be looking into them. Yeah, that's awesome. Okay, so uh, I didn't say that the Crab Nebula is actually not in the Cancer constellation, which is the Crab if you know your constellations. It's actually in one of the horns of the bull, Taurus. So maybe if we listen to Ian Morrison with this month's Night Sky, we'll see if he says anything about Taurus on maybe you can see the crab if you're in the Northern Hemisphere. The Night Sky for December 2018. Well, of course, the great thing is we have long nights, so lots of time to observe the heavens, hoping, of course, it's clear. Well, after sunset, the great square of Pegasus is setting over towards the western horizon. Above it, towards the zenith, is the constellation of Cassiopeia, the W. And as I've said before, if you take the right-hand V of the W, quite prominent, it points directly down towards the Andromeda galaxy. It's one of the ways of finding it. If you go to the centre of Cassiopeia, and down to the left, you come towards Perseus. And between the two, 
is the rather lovely double cluster, which you can see as a fuzzy blob in binoculars, and it looks lovely in a small telescope. And in Perseus, we have the bright star Murfak, but also the star Algol, the demon star. It winks. It's actually an eclipsing binary. Moving further down towards the southeast is the bright star Capella. And that, of course, is above the lovely constellation Taurus, with the Hyades cluster and the Pleiades cluster. In the Hyades cluster, there's a bright red star, Aldebaran, which actually isn't part of the cluster. It's about halfway between us and it. And I'm going to come back to those two later in the talk. And then rising over in the east are the heavenly twins, Castor and Pollux, in the constellation of Gemini. So it's actually a rather lovely part of the sky to look at this month. Well, what about the planets? Well, Jupiter actually passed between the sun on November the 26th. So obviously not visible for the first part of the month. But it will appear very low in the eastern pre-dawn sky around the 12th of the month, when it will have a magnitude of about minus 1.8 and a disk 32 arc seconds across. So it's not a particularly good month to observe Jupiter, but there is a highlight I'll come to later on. Now again, Saturn, that might just be glimpsed in the first few days of December, very low in the southwest, about 4.45 p.m. But it soon disappears into the sun's glare as it moves towards superior conjunction, that's behind the sun, on January the 2nd. We'll have a disk of about 15 arc seconds across and a magnitude of plus 0.5. So that's obviously not a good month really for Saturn. In contrast, it's a good apparition for Mercury. It actually passed between us and the Sun, that's called inferior conjunction, on the 27th of November, but appears in the pre-dawn sky around the 6th of the month, having then a magnitude of plus 0.5, which increases to magnitude 0, or 0, by the 8th. It reaches its greatest elongation west of the Sun on the 16th, when it's 21 degrees away from the Sun, then rising over an hour and a half before the Sun at which point it's actually 60% lit. Now, the good thing is that at this time of the year, the morning ecliptic is at a steep angle to the horizon. So this makes it a very excellent apparition, and Mercury rises quite high into the sky. Now, Mars. Well, though fading from magnitude minus 0 to plus 0 0.4 during the month, it remains prominent in the southern sky, as it starts the month at an elevation of 27 degrees in Aquarius. It will lie due south at around 6pm. As the month progresses, it moves eastwards into Pisces on the 21st, slightly higher in elevation and due south about 5.30pm. As it moves away, its angular size falls from 9.3 arc seconds to 7.5 arc seconds so it'll become pretty hard to spot any details, such as Certis Major, on its salmon-pink surface. Well, Venus begins December at an elevation of about 32 degrees. This is seen in the east before dawn, with a dazzling magnitude of minus 4.9, as bright as ever gets. 
His angular size reduces from 40.7 to 26.6 arc seconds during the month as it moves away from the Earth. But at the same time, the percentage illuminated disk, that's called the phase, increases from 26% to 47%, which is why the brightness only reduces down to about minus 4.6 magnitudes. It will reach greatest elongation from the Sun on January the 6th. Well, finally, what about the highlights? Well, I think there are two really standout ones. Firstly, this month we have a chance of seeing a naked eye comet. Comet 46P Worth Tannen rises high in the sky and could become visible to our unaided eye. On the night sky page, just search night sky jodrell, I put a chart showing you where you can see the comet during the month. It's rising from Ophiuchus through Taurus and then into Auriga. A particular night to look for it is the 16th, 17th of December, when it will pass between the Pleiades and the Hyades cluster. And that will make a wonderful photo opportunity. I just do hope it's clear. On the night of the 24th, it will lie very, very close to Capella in Auriga. But sadly then, the moon is at full so perhaps not so easily visible. At closest approach on the night of the 16th of December, it will only be 30 times further away than the moon, and that is pretty close. The coma should then be about one kilometre across in size and span about one degree. The waxing gibbous moon will hinder our view early on that night, but will set at about 1 a.m., so that's the night when it's well worth staying up late for, or possibly setting the alarm clock and getting up at about one o'clock in the morning. On December the 3rd, before dawn, Venus lies below a very thin crescent moon. So looking southeast before dawn, again if clear, we could easily spot Venus, very, very bright, lying below this very thin crescent moon. And Spica, that's Alpha Virginis in Virgo, is over to the right of Venus, making a very nice photo opportunity. And this is the other, I think, highlight of the month, real highlight. December the 7th, one hour after sunset. A very close conjunction of Mars and Neptune. So if it's clear, looking south after sunset, you'll easily spot Mars at about 28 degrees elevation. But when it gets fully dark, either using binoculars or a small telescope, Neptune should appear just down to its lower right. So that's a great opportunity to find Neptune easily if you haven't seen it before. Just let's hope it's clear. On December the 14th, after sunset, Mars will lie four degrees above a first quarter moon. That's looking south after sunset. Then we have the first of two meteor showers this month. On the nights of the 14th and 15th, after midnight, there's a chance to see the Geminid meteor shower. The moon's at first quarter and will set around 11pm, so when Gemini is highest in the sky, its light will not hinder our view. They can often produce near fireballs, so the shower is well worth observing if you have a chance. Obviously, try and get well away from a town or city. They're quite slow-moving meteors, which arise from the debris released by the asteroid 3200 Fairton, 
and that's pretty unusual, as virtually all meteors come from comets. As you might expect from the title, the radiant, which is where the meteors appear to come from, is close to the bright star Castor in the constellation of Gemini, as shown on the chart in the night sky page. If it's clear, it will be cold, so wrap up well, wear a woolly hat and have some hot drinks with you. On December the 21st, just before dawn, Jupiter and Mercury are together with Venus lying above. Again, a nice photo opportunity. We have a second meteor shower on the mornings of December the 22nd, 23rd, called the Ursiad meteor shower. And it's not surprising that the radiant of that shower is in fact close to the star Kokab in Ursa Minor. So it's looking northwards at high elevation to see them. It's not the best shower. The peak rate's only about 10 to 15 meters per hour. And sadly, this year, of course, we have a full moon on the 21st. So perhaps not the best year to observe the Earth's years. Finally, I usually mention something on the moon. And on late night, December the 16th, and then the following night, the 17th, two great lunar craters are close to the Terminator, when they show up best. And these are Tycho and Copernicus. Tycho is towards the bottom of the moon in a densely cratered area called the Lunar Southern Highlands. It's a relatively young crater, about 108 million years old. It is interesting in that it is thought to be informed by the impact of one of the remnants of an asteroid that gave rise to the asteroid Baptistina. Another asteroid originating from the same breakup may well have caused the Chicxulub crater 65 million years ago. Anyway, Tycho has a diameter of 85 kilometers and is nearly 5 kilometers deep. At full moon, the rays of material that were ejected when it was formed can be seen arcing across the surface. In contrast, Copernicus is about 800 million years old and lies in the eastern part of Oceanus Procolarum, just beyond the end of the Apennine mountain chain. It's 93 kilometers across and nearly 4 kilometers wide. There's a classic terrace crater. Both can be seen with binoculars. Thanks for that, Ian. And for our Southern Hemisphere listeners, here's Haratina Mogasanu with the night sky where you are. Kia ora from New Zealand. Hi, everyone. We're here at Space Place at Cat Observatory in the heart of Wellington in the Southern Hemisphere, my favourite place to be. I'm Haritina Mogasanu. And I'm Samuel Leski. Space Place is one of the historical icons of New Zealand in terms of astronomy, located in the heart of our capital city. There's not many capital cities where the Milky Way is visible on a dark night, so we're very lucky in Wellington to have a city not totally given over to light pollution. Yeah, we're very lucky here, and we have amazing historical telescopes, a 23 centimeters cook built in 1867 that we use for public viewing, and we also have a retro Boller and Juven 16-inch telescope. The Cook has quite a story behind it and how it got to New Zealand and eventually how it ended up in Wellington. And it has been a very important telescope for research, including being used to photograph the Halley's Comet in 1910. 
and also on display is a James Short telescope. We only look at this one and not through it. It's locked in the displays. It's a very important telescope, and we believe it came here with Captain Cook. It was donated by Adam Reed, and he's the son of Peter Reed, who was the creator and presenter of New Zealand's night sky TV show in the 1960s. We also have a beautiful planetarium where I spend a lot of my time. If you ever wish to find us, Space Place is at the top of the Botanic Gardens, looking out to the harbour. And surrounded by flowers and New Zealand birds that are amazing. So you can imagine the views and the sound both day and night. We actually have a bunch of New Zealand owls in a tree right in the front of us. They're called Mopork and we can always hear them when we look through the telescopes. We have some instructions for you as to what to do with the December night sky. For those of us who don't read instructions, we just have some amazing stuff that we wish to share. And those who do neither instructions nor stories, here's the gossip. Did you know there's going to be a comet in the December night sky? How about a meteor shower and a full moon and the summer solstice? And did you know that this Christmas we celebrate 50 years since we went around the moon? Oh yeah, and also in December, the Americans aiming to land a probe on an asteroid and get a sample. And my favourite, someone has calculated all the starlight that adds up in the universe. So starting this month, we'll be fully informed about how many photons are actually reaching the Earth since the dawn of time. Or so they say. So in December, here's what you need to do. Look for the comet around the 16th of December. It should appear on the eastern horizon, just in between the Pleiades and the Hyades. Perhaps take a picture of it too. Just because you can, it's going to be really bright. Keep an eye on our site for instructions for how to do that if you need help. Look for the meteor shower anytime between 7 and 17 of December. That it, yeah, you're right, it's almost in the same time as the comet. It is the Gemini, so the radiant, the point in the sky that seems to rain stars, will be in the constellation Gemini. With the full moon, now depends if you're into moonlight or not. I'm not, it casts too much light and I cannot see the stars properly, so I'm trying to avoid it as much as I can. The good news is that the first two weeks are good for observing, since the new moon will be on the 7th of December. The awesome thing is that this month's full moon will coincide with the Apollo 8's 50 years around the moon celebration. Just a few days before that, at 11.23 precisely a.m. on a Saturday, 22nd of December, Earth will be at its maximum tilt towards the sun. What does it mean for us? Well, it will be the shortest night and with the moon almost full, best thing we can do is just celebrate light. Speaking of which, our sun went stealth. It's in a minimum of a minimum. But just because we can't see any spots on it, it doesn't mean there is nothing to learn about it. The Parker Solar Probe has now joined the rest of the successful missions out there and we're looking forward to some good data from it. Since December is the month of major celebrations, we thought a star party might be in order. Star party? Well, if you've never been to one, here's a great opportunity. It could be a moon party if it's around Christmas, or else a star party could work around the 7th of December, more or less a few days. Now, the trick is the night is extremely short. We wanted to photograph 47 Tucano the other day, and we had to wait until 9.22pm. And even then, there wasn't good enough, it wasn't dark enough for proper imaging, only for lining up. <clears throat> so your efforts might be best conserved to try and find the comet. 
here's a comet party. We don't get these too often. Now, I do remember a few years ago, a comet appeared in the New Zealand sky around this time. It was fun, and it wasn't as bright as this one. We needed telescopes in to see it, and this one is a naked eye comet. So comet party seems like a good idea. The best time to look at it is just after sunset on the 16th of December, and it'll have a magnitude of approximately three. What does that mean? It means that we can see it with the naked eye. Have you ever tried to pronounce a comet name? No. It's 46P... W-I-R-T-A-N-I-N. Go pronounce that in one word. P stands for periodic, and 46 is, that's the 46th to be discovered, in case you were wondering, the first ever was Halley's Comet. Virtanen will arrive from the direction of Cetus Eridani, and it is very tiny, only 1.2 kilometers in diameter. Virtanen has a short period too, 5.4 years. What's cool is that this comet was the original target for ESA's Rosetta spacecraft, but the launch window was missed, so they sent the probe to another comet with an even better name, just because it's longer and harder to pronounce. 67P Churimov-Gerasimenko. I have no hope of pronouncing that one. (laughs) Right, so what's a magnitude 3? Well, if you've ever managed to spot the famous galaxy Andromeda, or M31, then you have the answer. It looks a little bit like in brightness as Andromeda Galaxy. Now that you know where to look and what you might find, the comet can be your centerpiece for the comet party. But nothing says that you shouldn't look at the stars and deep sky objects. Now New Zealand is a great spot for observing the night sky. And we of course get the whole southern sky. But it's also we get a reasonable chunk of the northern sky as well. We can't see the stalwarts of the northern sky, such as the Big Dipper, and there's no taking in the beautiful face-on spirals such as M51, the Whirlpool Galaxy, or M101, the Pinwheel Galaxy. At this time of the year, the nights are getting shorter and shorter, and the telescopes of the early evening are being swapped with barbecues, and the smell of lithium grease has been replaced with the smell of burnt sausages. But while some of our fellow Wellingtonians are going to bed or spinning embellished stories around the embers of their barbecue, we are cracking open the space-placed domes and collecting some ancient photons. Some favourites of mine are visible in the night sky, and the early part of the month will be an ideal time to try and see them, given the moon will be well hidden. The first of these is M74, and unfortunately, despite all the aperture we have available at Space Place, we're not going to see this one, because visually it is very, very low surface brightness. We'll have to borrow the van and take the portable mead over the hills to the very dark skies of the wire wrapper to see this beautiful face-on spiral. Luckily, it's not all bad for galaxy hunting in December. It's not too far from M74 as the bright galaxy of M77, also known as Cetus A. This one is easy to spot even from central Wellington. We won't see the faint outer, outer regions of the spiral arms, but the bright active core is very visible, and at 33 million light years distance, the photons from this object have spent a long time making their way to us here in Wellington. Despite not having M51 and M101 to look at, we do have some very impressive galaxies in the southern sky. One of these is NGC 253, also known as the Sculptor Galaxy. This is a large spiral galaxy at an angle to us, so it looks like an elongated ellipse. It's relatively bright and easy to spot if you've got plenty of aperture. You'll have to put your light bucket on the back of your scooter and head to a dark sky location to make out much detail though. But if you do, you'll be in for a treat 
as you take in the complex shapes and clumps of visible detail around the disk. Sculptor is about 12 million light years away and appears about 27 arc minutes long, so it's quite big. Quite close to Sculptor is the tight spiral galaxy known as NGC 300. This is a great galaxy to view as it's quite close at only 6.6 .6 million light years, so really next door. For Northern Sky observers, it's a bit like a mini M33, the Triangulum Galaxy. Viewing from Wellington will show the bright core, but you'll have to head to the hills again to get any detail out of the spiral arms. Keen astrophotographers will have a better time in Wellington as this galaxy is bright enough to burn through the light pollution and produce quite a nice photo. The problem with viewing galaxies is they don't really look anything like the beautiful photographs that people take. They're often just a faint grey smudge in the eyepiece and you have to use your best visual observing skills and imagination to get any detail out of what you're looking at. This is when it's great to swing the telescope around to the majestic brilliance of the likes of the Tarantula Nebula. This gives you a picture in the eyepiece very similar to what photographers can capture, just not in colour. This big giant bright complex of gas clouds and massive stars looks a bit like a spider, hence its name, and it's a must-see of the southern sky and is almost compulsory viewing on any observing evening. Right, and if all the above fails, you could always have a moon party. That could be really spectacular, since 50 years ago, the first people orbited around the moon. These were the astronauts of Apollo 8. There were some amazing things that happened during that flight, including taking the picture that changed the world, Earthrise, one little picture that is credited as the most important legacy of the Apollo program, showing Earth half hanging in the shadow and suspended in the middle of nothing at all. Humans saw their planet for the first time as a whole world, a small, blue, finite globe in the distance. It is the image that is credited with starting the environmental movement and has been used as a hopeful symbol of global unity. So we think if you're going to have a moon party this December, it's going to be pretty cool. And a star party, for that matter, and a comet party too. Keep an eye on our website. We're going to put more content there, links to all these events, to a movie that it's about the story of how the Apollo moon picture was taken and Sam's instructions how to find deep sky objects. There's one more thing that I want to talk about, Mars. Mars will always have a special place in my heart and now has a new resident, Insight. Insight was the mission that brought the first CubeSats to Mars and now it sits happily on the red planet, stretching its arms, literally. So we wish you happy hunting for comets and galaxies this month and if all that doesn't work, then grab yourself a couple of craters on the moon. Clear skies from Haritina and Sam. Here at Space Place at Carter Observatory in Wellington, New Zealand, and see you next year. Thanks for that, Haratina. And now on to the feedback. Alrighty, so we haven't really had anything on Twitter or Facebook this time around, um, but we do actually have a letter, which is really exciting. So thank you to Peran Montford. Because Pran also points out that we do often get tweets and, and things like that, but we don't really get letters that often. And we do love, we have mentioned how much we love postcards and things and letters. So we're really keen to get letters because that's really cool. Everybody loves to get mail. Um, and Pran also included a lovely photograph that we're going to put up on our board. Um, it's really, really beautiful. Uh, a picture of the night sky over a Neolithic stone monument. Um, Pran has 
requested that we keep the location secret, which is very mysterious, but we will do that. Um, so Peran was, came across the site um, while they were taking a long route between Glasgow and London, uh, and they stopped at dawn on a cold and frosty, frosty January morning in Galloway. Um, and among the stones, they met a local who gets up most dawns and dusks to kind of mark where the shadows of the stones are um, to record over the time how they change. So he spent a while showing uh, where the shadows were and how they moved over the year and, and over the years. Uh, they then spent the rest of the day discussing solar mechanics, which uh, the person marking the shadows had spent years driving from first principles just from his observations, which is really cool and dedicated, um, until the cold got too deeply into their bones and they went for coffee instead, uh, which I think is totally reasonable. As an Australian in the Northern Hemisphere, I'm cold a lot. Um, so anyway, Peran told a friend of their experience and she'd given, been given this picture uh, as it's where she'd grown up. So Peran thought it'd look good on the wall of our new recording studio, which it totally will. Uh, Grant also has a question, which is really cool and interesting, but we're going to save that for an Ask an Astronomer. But we just wanted to say thank you so much, Pran, for the amazing photo and for the story, because we really love that. And thank you for listening as well. And you'll hear the answer to your question on an upcoming episode. I don't know which one, um, but I'm sure one of the ones very soon. Um, and Merry Christmas to you too, Pran. Thank you for your letter. We loved it. Thanks, Pran. Uh, and if you want to get in touch, um, you can do so via the website at www.jodcast.net. Uh, you can find us on Twitter at twitter.com forward slash jodcast, where we'll be sharing a lot of Joe memes. <laughs> I forgot about that. <laughs> uh, Facebook at facebook.com forward slash jodcast. YouTube at youtube.com slash jodcast. If you're on Flickr, you can go to flickr.com forward slash groups forward slash jodcast. And don't forget that you can send us posts. The address is on the website. And we would love to get more photos Please and letters do. and postcards. Yeah. yeah, love it. Thanks to Amory Trio for the interview. The editors were... Adam A. Visson. George Bendo, Tian Bizaudenhout, and Tom Scrag. The producer was Jake Starberg-Morgan. Until next time... Jod on! on!